you're describing something completely unique, completely queer, mm -hmm. and it's a chamber piece. Count me in. This is the Gospel of Musical Theater, a priestly look at some of your favorite musicals with your hosts, Cathedral Deans and Musical Theater Queens, Nathan LaRude and Peter Elliott. Welcome to the Gospel of Musical Theater. I'm Nathan and Peter is with me, Peter from Vancouver. Peter and I haven't been on the on a call with each other for a little while, so Peter, it's good to see you, your face. Nathan. Gee whiz, I miss it's you great too. to be back together. Let's uh, yeah. I hope you're having a wonderful sabbatical and I'm really happy and excited about today. I am too. We've got two special guests with us today. Uh, it, coming from, from Pennsylvania today, although she's a Portlander, is Stephanie Smith, the music director for a new production of The Music Man, Meredith Wilson's The Music Man, that's going to be premiering here in Portland at Third Rail Rep in just a couple weeks. And the director of the production, Isaac Lamb. Isaac and Stephanie, would you, uh, would you introduce yourselves a little bit and tell us who you are and, uh, and where you're coming from? I, uh, my name is Isaac, Isaac Lamb. I was born in Portland, uh, raised in Portland, uh, left for a number of years to Los Angeles to go to college at Loyola Marymount University. And then- um, Oh, you are a good Catholic boy, aren't I you? I told you, yeah. Loyola Marymount, good for <laughs> you. Get this, I went, I went from Jesuit high school to Loyola Marymount. So oh my I, gosh. Yeah, the Jesuits had their hooks into me early. Well, and as very, very appropriate, the Jesuits are not a, if you're going to get hooks in you, those are not the worst hooks to get into you. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. I, have to, I feel like I always have to tell people who aren't Catholic that they're the good ones. The Jesuits. The, yeah. <laughs> we like them. We like them. We like them. Yeah. Like Pope very, Francis is a Jesuit. That's right. Pope Francis is a Jesuit. They're all, you know, the Jesuits are, are just barely Catholic. That's what my mom likes to say. <laughs> So yeah, I was uh, I, I was in the theater arts in high school and um, in college. I went to film school in, in Los mm -hmm. Angeles, thinking that I would become a film director. And then when you get when you get a film degree in LA, especially in uh, the early two thousands, your only available job is really to work on reality television. So I wound up get this, I wound up working on the first season of The Apprentice. Get out. Oh my gosh. Oh, do you have, Isaac, do you have stories? Oh, have I you have signed one. an NDA? Can you even talk about this? I can't really talk about it. I was going to say, you probably can't really talk about this. But I will also admit that I don't remember any, I don't remember most of the specifics, but when the 2016 election in the run-up, especially after the Access Hollywood tape came out, oh I gosh. got I got a phone call probably every day from some major news organization trying to dig up some more you know, material. Hmm. And you know, the thing I told them was the thing that, you know, I was like, all, he said all kinds of awful things. And, <laughs> yeah, how far, how far down this do you want to go? <laughs> yeah, and I was like, I don't have any proof of it because I right. never thought he'd be the president of the United States. <laughs> that wasn't really <laughs> on our radar screen at that point. Like, yeah, yeah. It like, I got to save this. I got to hang right. on to the videotape. But uh, it's out there. Yeah. So I, I became I only worked one season in reality television. And I said, this is not for me. It, yeah. it, it doesn't uh, jive with my personal ethics and moral code. So right. <laughs> uh, I was kind of I was a little bit at sea. I didn't know what to do. And there was a uh, an audition for a touring one man Broadway show called Defending the Caveman mm. by a guy named Rob Becker. That was like a huge hit in the 90s and was launching into the national tour. And they were, they had so many dates, they needed to hire a second 
actor to do the show. So Rob was going to tour and they needed more actors to do, to do the rest of the tour. So I auditioned for it on a lark, really. Didn't think I was going to get it. So my first professional acting job was touring the United States in a one-man show, performing wow. someone else's, essentially their stand Someone else's one-man show. How yeah, interesting. Exactly. Yeah. Which was, which I call that my grad school. That was sort of how I yeah. got my legs as a performer, but I really started to understand like the art of, of commanding an audience, mm-hmm. you know, alone is, is a very particular and uh, useful skill. So I not, not unlike preaching a sermon, I suspect you would probably yeah. do really well in the pulpit. You know, I have, there was a, I had a brief flirtation with priesthood in the Catholic, the Catholic priesthood, as, uh-huh. as I think most young Jesuit Catholic, yeah. you know, do. Yep. And it really was the, like, if I could have gotten married and had kids, I would have done it, you know? Yeah. So I keep, I keep hope, hope, hoping one day Pope Francis on his, on his, uh, on his way. I out. mean, yeah, like, don't, 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 don't count him out yet. Although on that one, I think we're probably, we're probably a couple hundred years away from that particular shift. Catholic church moves at a glacial pace, but we yep. love them <laughs> sometimes. We love them sometimes. Sometimes. Um, sometimes. Yeah. So anyway, I, I, I very, uh, I very much think that preaching and, uh, and one man show performing are yeah. closely related. I'm very closely related. I would, I would affirm that when I go to like, you know, to church services, Mm -hmm. I will, as a director or myself, I will just sit in the audience and just take notes, you know, Uh, (laughs) you you never really turn that part of your brain off. Do you never? No, I'm Uh like, Oh man, you're like, you're like staging the liturgy. It's like, Oh, that, 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 that accolade's got to cheat out a little bit. Like you're upstaging yourself, sweetheart. You're upstaging yourself. Yeah. I know exactly how that works. You got to drive to the end of the line. (laughs) Don't, don't push the pronouns don't push the pronouns like there's all yeah there's yeah there's just so much about it that i'm there's like so ah. but um but yeah I, I ended up coming back to portland off of tour i toured that show for seven years wow. I, did, I did it almost two thousand times that is graduate school for you yeah it really was yeah and then and then you know i was trying to figure out what to do next and i you know by the time that show had ended portland had started to kind of become a an interesting theater town you know it's scrappy and small but it when I left, it, there were there wasn't a lot of like really exciting theater going on that I recall from my childhood. And when I came back, it was like Third Rail had yeah. had been founded. They were making really excellent work. There was all this new and contemporary uh, playwriting going on. You know, it was just like kind of an exciting time to come home. So, yeah. and I miss being in Portland. You know, Portland is one of those places when you're from here, it's really hard to go anywhere else yeah. and feel like you can you can be satisfied you know canada is actually one of the few places i felt like i have been to where i was like i could live here you know yep. as a portlander i could live here yep. um but but yeah that pacific northwest draw is just really it's hard That's to be strong yeah so it yeah. brought me back and i i came back to portland and and started to make a a career here and, and initially as an actor and then mm-hmm. you know i i've always i like telling people what to do so I've always had uh, I've always had this draw to be a director, and and I and I think in a ter- in terms of like vision, you know, a lot of the times I'll when I hear music or when I you know when I'm inspired by something, I very often see it in my head first, you know, and so it felt like Portland was both a safe place to kind of experiment and kind of dip my toe into those waters, and then. I just got a foothold and um, I've been directing a lot. I've been directing a lot of musical theater in Portland, mm-hmm. but, uh, but yeah, I've directed all over the place. So, that's um, awesome. but yeah, that's, that's kind of how I got to where I am now. Now I'm a, now I'm a married father of twin three-year-olds. And so. they may show up on the podcast. We'll see. Yeah, they're, uh, they're, they're floating around in the background. So <laughs> hear them coming. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. 
Stephanie, what about you? You're a, you're in Pennsylvania right now, but you live in Portland. That's is that right? I do. I live yeah. in Portland. I am currently conducting the Harrisburg Gaiman's Chorus in uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Oh, how the awesome. virtual world has allowed yeah. me to conduct via FaceTime. Believe it or not, I'm on screen in a room with a bunch of guys and a piano player. And oh, I love it. That's awesome. Work. Absolutely. So our concerts are this week. So I'm here to help with the 35th anniversary concerts for them. I'm originally from Wichita Falls, Texas. Okay. I was raised Southern Baptist with a, um, I'm a classical concert pianist, was raised competitive in a product of public school education. My daddy is a band director, mm. <laughs> right? Music yeah, man. Very, a music uh, man, here we go, yeah. Absolutely, my mother was an English teacher who then uh, moved into Spanish uh, as a Spanish teacher for the last 15, 20 years of her career. And interestingly enough, she is the one that would turn on TNT, right? I, I would just sit in front of the TV and watch all of the old musicals, um, all of them, right? I, I always say, you know, people are like, when did you know you're gay? I'm like, when Sid Charisse started dancing? <laughs> oh, I love this. I love this. Yeah. Uh -huh. Which was literally it, like, undressed in a uh -huh. I was going to say, it's that, it's that shot of her leg where she oh like puts God. it out and you're like, oh, that's the sexiest thing. I'll I've have one of those. Like, that's just fabulous. Well, and then I also. Sid Charisse turned you gay. That is, that is, that's a great gay origin story. Well, right and then I also realized that I wanted Gene Kelly. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, the whole thing, right? I was like, who's, okay, who's kind of the sexiest lady in that whole film and all kinds uh, of ways. Throwing that out there. Yeah. yeah just going to so, throw that out there. There's a lot of interesting gender play happening between Sid Charisse and Gene Kelly. It's a uh, it's Absolutely. a queer partnership in every every possible way. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, we'll talk about this later, but the connection to Music Man. I mean, I was raised in that town, the one that they're describing. Oh, That's the yeah. connection for me, yeah. and I can. Talk you know, about River City. Yeah. Oh, I do. I just like to say, the minute I graduated high school at age 17, I just went left, uh, went to the west uh, until I hit water. Right, it was like, get me out of here. Um, so I did my undergrad in piano performance in Boulder, Colorado, mm -hmm. and then continued on to San Francisco. I got my master's in chamber music performance from the conservatory nice. there. Mm -hmm. And then it took me the last 20 years to find myself. It's easy as a musician, especially a pianist, to just plug in. I've done elementary school. I've taught K to eight for many, many years. I have done church forever. Um, I, you know, I think it's interesting that I'm on the uh, on the the call with some Episcopal priests. Um, I, I've done so many different styles of worship. I call myself a ritual junkie. There I just love. Uh, honestly, I may be the only person on the planet that prefers Easter Vigil done in its full regalia. Oh no, you're not the. Uh, there, you, oh. you would find a lot of uh, sympathy among Episcopals and is... probably among Jesuits too. I saw I was hand go up. Yeah, I now think that... we're, we're probably all Easter Vigil people. I think on this call. Right? Is... Yeah, absolutely. Okay. That's real Easter. That's musical real Easter. theater right there. I'm like, are right you seriously there. chanting outside yep. in a robe with you're carving into a knife, singing in Latin, yep. then you're coming in by candlelight chanting and we're all responding. Then we're doing some readings and suddenly yep. the light comes on and then you're going to- And everybody does jazz hands. I mean, Alleluia happens and we all do, it's it's a it's a flossy oh, number at that point. That yeah. is like, I could do Easter Vigil like every day, every you day. know? I mean, absolutely. 
And so the last <laughs> church that I worked for, my dismount was Grace Cathedral in San Francisco. And it really did kind of redeem me, uh, mm-hmm. redeem church in my mind. It was really a lovely place uh, to be. They iron their fabrics. Everyone speaks correct English in my sentence. <laughs> you know, I was just like, oh, this is so delightful. There's no dangling participles. It's phenomenal. You know, um, but I, you know, it, it really was a lovely, lovely way to end. I'm a gay rights activist. That is part of how I identify. I have conducted uh, gala choruses. The Gay and Lesbian Association of Choruses um, has some, you know, five or six hundred choruses um, internationally. And I conducted the Lesbian Gay Chorus of San Francisco. That is the world's first mixed chorus to use gay or lesbian in their name. Nice. And they just rebranded as the Queer Chorus of San Francisco. And that mm-hmm. has actually been sort of a hot topic yeah, for about 15 years. So they yeah. just unanimously voted, which tells me there was a change in culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really excited for them. Uh, I conducted the Oakland Gay Men's Chorus for quite a while as their interim twice. Yes, there's a story there. I shan't go into it. And I worked with Confluence LGBT Chorus, the Northwest Queer Chorus uh, in Portland. And I was asked to work with the Harrisburg Gay Men's Chorus. And so part of what I do is gay rights activism. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in, in the rest of me, when I say it took me a while to, to find myself as a concert pianist, you know, like Isaac was talking about, you know, what can I do with this job? You're either going to tour forever. You're going to spend 10 hours a day in the practice room by yourself. And then you're going to fly. It sounds really sexy, but actually flying to Japan, having one night in a hotel room to then do a dress rehearsal with an orchestra, then play a couple of concerts and leave is not my idea. That's exhausting. It's really, really exhausting. Um, So I just kind of realized, well, that's not for me. I'm also a chamber musician. So I want to work with other people, specifically small ensembles. This particular iteration of Music Man is absolutely a chamber piece. There are six people working together. It is absolutely a chamber ensemble. Um, And so I I really identify with that. Um, And then when I was in San Francisco, I got a phone call from a buddy in undergrad in Boulder. And he said, is this still your number? I have a Broadway singer that is looking for a piano player and I cannot, I'm getting a a teaching position at Champaign-Urbana and I cannot keep flying to the West Coast to play for him. Um, It's Frank D'Ambrosio. And I said, who? And he, and he just said, Google it, sweetie. (laughs) You'll you'll find stuff on him. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Don't embarrass yourself. You know, he was the phantom of the opera and the national tour and then was uh, in San Francisco for five years there doing that role. And so I've been touring with him for the last 10 years. And after, you know, again, the hotels started to become unsexy. Um, I started to, I wanted to choose my audiences when you're a hired pianist. I mean, I I remember walking into an undisclosed location because events like this are not supposed to even exist. I'm somewhere in Washington, DC, and I walk into a room and I saw Dr. Laura and I thought, wait, I'm supposed to get a knife and stab her. Like for, for all of us, I'm supposed to kill her right now, right? And then I realized, no, I'm not. I'm an artist. I'm a musician. I, she is part of the congregation, if you will, the audience. And what I have to bring to her is music, right? I'm sitting next to the general who is making 
jokes about Chelsea Manning, Jeez. like straight up. And I'm thinking, I, am I am I supposed to be here right now? Like mm-hmm. I'm supposed to punch you, you know, sorry to throw violence in here. But honestly, like it, it was enraging mm-hmm. to be in a room of people with Dick Cheney and I can't say anything, mm-hmm. you know, and I just thought this is not what I want to do. I want to choose my projects. I want to choose my audiences, you know, uh, Brandy Carlisle, when we came out of pandemic, there was an interview with her and she said, I just can't wait to get out there with the people and just be with the people again and and spread my music with the people and just meet all y'all again. And I thought that is not how I feel. (laughs) I'm the exact opposite. (laughs) I have lost that love and feeling, you know, Mm -hmm. and so um, I I retired uh, from Frank, even though he did threaten to kill my friends and family and send a fully armed battalion to remind me of his love. So, uh, I have taken a few gigs with him again and I shall, you know, also, so there'll be a, back. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's a love affair. Uh, uh-huh. And so when I really like found myself, I'm, I'm touring, I'm not doing church anymore. I'm with, I'm conducting, I'm, do, you know, whatever. I was with Confluence LGBT chorus. And one of the people said, I'm, I think I'm the one having trouble matching pitch. Can, do you, do you teach people privately? And I said, no, but I'll work with you. Right. And so I worked with them and then word spread. Is Stephanie working with you? Do you work with me? You know, and then there were solo auditions and everybody needed to practice their solos for each other. And that became the first Oregon Miss Smith class. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have an entire uh, program called Miss Smith presents. And really what I do is empower ordinary people to make music that's it that's like the 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 basic sentence that that i've got uh retired teachers are just like you know i used to play piano when i was 20 and i lost it and i want to get back into it you know um gosh my my kids make fun of me when i'm singing to the radio and i'd really like to improve this you know just strengthening Mm -hmm. the people uh, right to empower them to go to open mics and make music out in the world, right? And so I, I just like to empower people to make music and have balance in their lives, right? So when I got a call from Meredith K. Clark, she and I worked together at Resound. Um, she said I was in this cool little production of Music Man. I am not going to be able to do it again because of my own touring schedule. Do you music direct? And I said absolutely not describe what we're doing and she said it's music man with six people they're all going to accompany themselves and they're all playing all these different roles and i went sounds like fun yes my favorite musical of all time i'll just go on record saying that okay awesome and then you're describing something completely unique completely queer and it's a chamber piece count me in um and so i have often used the phrase i feel called to this production Mm -hmm. i don't feel like i was hired i was drawn to it and i've met isaac i had heard of isaac you know and just to meet him i think he and i just have a a great connection Uh, our brains work well together you know and we're, we're on the same on the same page with with the the show um so it's really just been a total uh pleasure Right. Well, I, well, I've sort of like found my, my, my people and my place in things in Portland to, to then get the opportunity to do this just kind of feels like this full circle Oh, chamber music activism. This is my idea of musical theater that I want to be a part of, you know, so it's just a really cool uh, convergence of all of who I am to be in this particular production. That's awesome.
Peter, would you would you tell us a little bit of Stephanie's kind of alluded here to the the longer yeah. cultural history of Meredith Wilson's and the Music Man, her favorite musical. Isaac, is it? Are you a lover of the Music Man, uh, a culture yeah. despiser? Where are you with with the original kind of source material? I am an absolute devotee of the Music Man. Okay, so we've we've got Meredith Wilson fans here on the call, and I'll self-identify that way too. I I love the show sometimes in spite of itself. I'll say. Um, yeah. Although, and then one of the things we want to talk about is, I, I I'll, and I'll just lay this out there, I think Meredith Wilson is doing something far more subversive with the way that he's presenting River City, Iowa, than it is usually understood in that kind of nostalgic flag wavy, double down on barbershop quartets kind of way. I think the seeds of a critique are there. And sometimes yeah. it's more than the seeds. I think sometimes he's very deliberately critiquing kind of 1950s white, white culture, but that's getting a little ahead of ourselves. Peter, tell us a little bit about where this show comes from, about the guy who who created it. Um, and then we'll kind of talk a little bit about this this newest production of Music Man and its uh, its genesis. Yeah, and let's get right to it, because I assume everybody who's listening at least has a passing knowledge of Music Man. So we're in 1957, beginning just before Christmas on Broadway with uh, Robert Preston and Barbara Cook, uh, written by Meredith Wilson, uh, he also wrote The Unsinkable Molly Brown, which I think is a great underrated musical as well with some great tunes in it, based on his memoir, And There I Stood With My Piccolo. It was, and his fabulous little book, which is called, uh, but he doesn't know the territory, chronicles the, the story of how the music man came to be. And Isaac probably knows way more than me about it. But this thing was workshopped and refined and flopped and re-refined and so forth. But long story short, ended up on the Broadway, uh, 1375 performances. That's huge. A 1962 movie um, that's brilliant, That where it is well-treasured. You probably saw it on, on uh, Turner Music, on, on the Turner... Uh, uh, channel uh, when you were Stephanie going through all of those. So Meredith Wilson himself comes from a radio background. He was a musician, Hollywood or California, but transplanted to New York to do this show. He was writing it on his memoirs. But what I love about amongst the many things, and I love Music Man, what I think the the the, the eventual production ended up to be was a surefire winner with audiences. And I guess it's just the one piece I want to end with before I hear about how you've approached it. One of our theories, Nathan and mine, is the essential partner in musical theater is an audience. Of course, you have to have singers who can act and dance and sing. Uh, you need to have a plot, you need to have a way to tell the story. But without an audience, there's no musical theater, really. And I think what Music Man does, and it began with the earliest performances when uh, the reprise of 76 trombones, the audience all started clapping rhythmically to it. This has been a phenomenon of the show. It engages people, I think, at every level with music, with the audience knowing that Harold Hill is, uh, is a scam, but the people not, and then knowing. So there's that whole sort of piece going on. Some of the greatest songs, a barbershop quartet, uh, I mean, what could be better? 76 trombones led the big parade With 110 cornets close at hand They were followed by rows and rows Of the finest virtuosos, the cream of every famous band 
76 trombones caught the morning sun With 110 cornets right behind There were more than a thousand reeds springing up like weeds There were horns of every shape and kind There were copper bottom timpani and horse platoons Thundering, thundering all along the way Double bell euphoniums and big bassoons each bassoon having his big fat say There were fifty mounted cannon in the battery Thundering, thundering louder than before Clarinets of every size and trumpeters Would improvise a full octave higher than the score And just over to you, Isaac, the... When I was reading But He Doesn't Know the Territory and Meredith Wilson was talking about getting this show up which I think was five or six years um, from the initial, his initial script to its Broadway premiere. He and his wife, Rini, I think I'm saying that right, R-I-N-I, produced or presented Music Man to uh, producers, uh, directors, investors, just the two of them doing the whole show. And I wondered if in some ways that was the inspiration for this extraordinary thing that you're doing in Portland. Yeah, it absolutely was. So I, I was recommended to read that book by a, a dear friend of mine, Joel Farrell, who is also a musical theater director from Texas. And he he just knows me. And he was like, this is going to be right up your alley. You should read this book because it's a fascinating mm -hmm. account. It's a lot of inside baseball about like, how do you get a show produced yeah. to Broadway? And that so that's fascinating in and of itself. But it's also written as you're reading it. It's it's like you're it's like you're listening to the Music Man. You know, it's it is written in the same exact language with the same exact rhythms, the same sense of humor. Um, there is this like both loving embrace of the people of Iowa and this critique of the people of the Iowa. It's mm -hmm. not an uncomplicated un picture, mm -hmm. um, and, and he's very much aware of that. And so it's just a really fascinating read. But the thing that really struck me was these, these scenes where he and Rini, who um, was, a, it was an Eastern European immigrant, she was a Russian immigrant actually, um, yes. which I think is an instrumental thing to know uh, when you're an analyzing the text of The Music Man, is he was married to someone who was not from the United States. But that he wrote this thing about being an other, about others, you know, about being an other in the town of 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 townies, and I think that that is like the at the core of the thing, and is the part of it that almost never gets drawn out when it's produced, yeah. traditionally produced. And the other thing that gets ha that happens to it is that it's almost always presented, and I think originally on Broadway it was presented as this extravaganza, right? Okay. So it's it's which I think is there and is clearly. I mean, he was a marching band uh, flutist, so you know his interest is definitely in large ensembles of people moving to music across space. But the the thing that comes out of, but he doesn't know the territory, it, are these scenes where he and Rini perform all of the. The, the entire show from top to bottom in the parlor rooms of these producers' households. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, sit down at the piano mm -hmm. and they just perform the whole thing. And they would, there's all these like little anecdotes about, you know, Rini being in the kitchen when he needs her and like sailing into the room just in time to like throw a line out. And it's just this like, like 
such a fun account. And, and yeah. I said earlier, like, I wish there was video of it, you know, yeah. I would, I would, I would die to see like a, an old video of that. But what really sparked my interest at first was what, a, what a wonderful way to produce the music man, because it feels like you can hear that in the music man, that it really is a show you could just play on a piano. Um, none of the, even when it's fully orchestrated, none of it feels like it has to be grand to be effective. It's all the kind of music that at least for me, I grew up in a, in an Irish Catholic family that I was like one of 26 cousins. And we would like my, my, I have nine aunts and uncles on my mom's side and four on my dad's side. And it was just like, anytime, any family gathering would become this eruption of music eventually. Right. Someone would sit at the piano and play something or pick up a guitar and someone else would come in and sing harmony, maybe not even a very good harmony, but it didn't really matter. It was just sort of this like scrappy communal celebration of singing together, making music together. And that's what it feels like when you read that memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, is that it's like all these people just being roped into like, let me show you my show. And, um, and I so thought, how do you do it? How do you do it with six people? That's <laughs> well, it, you know, that idea collided with this other, this other idea. I was, um, I was actually directing a children's musical. I was hired to direct a children's musical version of a, of a story called Pete the cat, which any parent listening to this knows and is probably rolling their eyes at. Um, you cannot escape Pete the Cat when you raise children in America. But I held auditions for this like small cast children's musical, and they're all going to play cats and toads and frogs and whatever. It just so happened that the best actors who arrived for the audition were all women in this case. And so I, 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 that was who I cast. And I was informed by the, by the theater, by the children's theater, that that was an inherently political act to cast women to play male cats and toads and yeah and (laughs) which made me just like come out of my skin like a political act in a good way or in a bad way like in a like we don't want to we don't want to take that political stance we don't want to politicize our children's musicals Uh we don't which one i'm like why not and and two i'm also like this is not an inherently political act and the fact that you think it is is the problem (laughs) Um, you know is that it's pointing at and so i fought it for a while they didn't give an inch and so i resigned that show Hmm. and so that happened around the same time that i was thinking about this small stripped down version of the music man and one of the elements of any you know, golden era musical is that you have to deal with the antiquated and problematic racial and sexual and gender undertones of all of all. And that's present in the music man, even though in spades, yeah, yeah, I give Meredith Wilson a lot of credit because I think he is doing something that is more progressive and more, Mm -hmm. um, uh, so is common commenting socially and politically in a way that it doesn't ever really get drawn out of the text. But I think for 1957, he is yeah. absolutely, you know, pushing boundaries, but that does not carry over in the same way to 2022. So it felt like, you know, the the holdup for me in conceptualizing this tiny little version of the music man was like, what do I do with all this stuff that is problematic? The stuff about Native Americans, the stuff yeah. about gender and, and race and the absence of people of color from the story. And, you know, what do I do about all that? And then I had this moment happen and I was like, you know what? 
you know, screw it. I'm going to combine these two things and I'm not going to use any men in my music man. And I am not going to do it with a majority white cast. And um, I'm, I'm going to actually address some of the material in the, in the concept. And we're going to take, we're going to take some of the things we want to change to the license holder and to the estate and say, look, this is problematic. We, we have to make some changes. And that began a very long process of, of doing all of that, all of which is, you know, like to the estate and to MTI's great credit, Musical Theater International, they have been partners in that process. Wow, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really good. They've allowed, they've allowed certain cuts, they've approved certain cuts, mm-hmm. and they're working mm-hmm. with us on fixing or changing certain languages, you know, yeah. language pieces or lyrics. And so there's a lot of stuff that I think, you know, we can get into that if you want to, uh, that we're, we're changing and addressing. Wow. But also, I think the fun of it was like, how do you do it with six people? Yeah. And, the, and why six, you know? Um, and, and what I came down to was like, I need Harold and I need Marion, mm-hmm. and then I need the quartet. And the yeah. quartet gets to play everybody else and Harold and Marion get to enact the, the sort of main story. And what was great about that concept eventually when I had kind of connected the dots to this, like, no, you know, the, the gender idea and the, the queered and gender, like regendering of the, of the casting, it was that every, uh, everyone who is cast in this show and we have a cast of all uh, female or non-binary actors gets to play multiple genders in the course of the evening. So it, it actually diffuses this whole Mm -hmm. argument, this whole, like that's an inherently political act, you know, BS. It it actually addresses that by saying, look, look how playful we can be and look how imaginative we can be with our identity at any given time. And we're all sitting in this room. And by the way, we're going to make the audience do it too. And we're all sitting in this room and it's fine. And we're doing the music man and you're going to walk out of here and you're going to be okay. You know, mm-hmm. and, and we can actually unpack and, and diffuse all of this, like, you know, faux importance on, uh, you know, and socio, you know, social like nervousness around gender and queer mm-hmm. identities and, and all of that. And, and say like, it's just people. These are, yeah. these are just people playing other people. And these are characters we recognize. And why does it matter whether the person who plays Harold Hill identifies as a man or not? And why does it matter if the person who plays Marion identifies as a woman or not? It doesn't matter, actually. We can be more imaginative than that. And in fact, what better place to do that than the theater, you know, mm-hmm. which, is, which is what theater does more than any other art form is it allows the audience, like you said, theater does not exist without an audience. And the best and the most theatrical productions are the ones that engage the audience's imagination. Mm-hmm. That's the essential element. And so why not do that on every level of a production? So that's how those two ideas kind of okay. collided. Oh, I love that. That's that's so that's so interesting. So do I, I kind of want to go back a little bit to the the the, the critique you got to uh, with Pete the Cat. Is is this a political act? Do you understand this production of, of the Music Man as a as a political? And I, I may, maybe we want to unpack a little bit, like what that what does that mean when yeah. I mean because the, the critique, my sense is when 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 you were told you can't do this, that's political. Is politics are bad? Theater should be somehow. I mean, we get this all the time in church, right? Peter and I get told this all the time, right? That's a polit- keep politics out of the pulpit. That was a political sermon. We don't want to hear. And usually, what that means is. That, those are politics that for, with which I disagree, right? Yeah. Nobody ever says that's a political sermon and I loved it, right? Because if I agree with it, it's not political, it's just true. If I disagree with it, it's political. So right. sometimes I think we use po- political with scare quotes around it as, as a pseudonym for I disagree with that thing. But the other way, I think what you're articulating, Isaac, is 
any any casting of any show is inherently a political act. There's no way to get around gender and bodies and the way that those bodies engage and are coded culturally in characters. I mean, especially when you add then the layer of singing, right? Which, I mean, Stefan, I'm actually interested in your thoughts on this too, right? No, no, nowhere is more gendered than the way we think about voice parts, right? Who sings soprano? Who sings alto? Who sings tenor? Who sings bass? What do we do with countertenors? The queerest thing imaginable. Mm-hmm. Um, so you layer on kind of questions of musical ensembles and choral writing, which is a pretty gendered world. I mean, is there a way of doing, in some ways I would say like, you know, Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster on Broadway is a very political casting choice yep. for 2022. In the same way, I think Third Rail's production, I, I would argue is a kind of, this is a political production, not in the bad, scary way, but in yep. the way that you're articulating, right? Let's, let's think about the world we live in, uh, the kinds of contemporary controversies we are engaging right now in school boards, in churches, in, you know, in politics around gender and sexuality and race. Um, how does the music man help us to think about those things? And what might it actually have to say to 2022 that is consistent with what it had to say in 1958, but also, but also different, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think any, any time you're casting a play, you are reifying a world. So yeah. you are saying, you know, if you cast an all white version of the music man, you are saying there were no black people right. in Iowa in 1912 and that's right. just which is not true right like that's a really yeah. false so that is inherently a political act right. and so yeah so i think i mean i think the our industry is going through this reckoning right now with you know what it means when you can like the inherently political acts of casting that have yeah. already existed right. and I, I agree with you like this term political is imperfect because it you know yes what i'm doing is a political version of the music man but it's right. not because i want it to be that way it's because the world in which the context of the world in which it exists says that this is this is the different way to do Mm -hmm. the music and and what i would love to say in the utopian world in my mind is this is just the way to do the music man it's just a way to do it and and it could be like it's as legitimate as any other way Mm -hmm. Um, but i don't think that we're there that's not where we are as a society so by doing it this way we are saying we are making a statement and i Mm -hmm. the company's been very deliberate about that too you know when i first when i first brought you know the music man is a little bit outside of what third rail is normally known for producing Mm -hmm. (laughs) very edgier right (laughs) not a lot of 1950s musicals on third rail reps uh programming (laughs) priorities so 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 stephanie what's it been like to work musically with the cast that you have including teaching barbershop and harmony and all that sort of thing because it's a there's some and i'm thinking about a song like my white knight which has this enormous range. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about the patter songs. I'm thinking about the challenges that you must be facing as a music director with this extraordinary uh, extraordinary score. And uh, I just worried about like voices being able to last through the duration of the show, given the demands on voices, but that would just be me from afar. So I'm- Did you read an email from my cast members? Did you read an email? I didn't, but- (laughs) Peter's hacked into the internal, the the third rail rep message boards and is uh, picking up on something. (laughs) I can just imagine, this is a, I mean, this was a score that was challenging for Barbara Cook, who Mm -hmm. is, you know, somewhere in the pantheon of gods uh, on Broadway. So yeah, just kind of curious about what it's been like or what it is like for you working with the cast. So honestly, um, Isaac cast a brilliant 
I, I was with him, but I don't know people like Isaac does. You know, he knows uh, more about casting theater than I do. Our Marion, Drew Rutledge, is a professional opera singer. And it's, it's a pleasure. I I have, I I don't want to say I have barely had to work with them. Um, but truly, um, honestly, the biggest challenge here is teaching piano to non-piano players, Mm. right? The piano, uh, and I don't want to give away too much, you know, I think, uh, there's, there's teasers here, but also I I want people to come see it, right? If you, I keep getting, how are you going to do this with six people? Come see. Come see. Yeah. (laughs) Honestly, come see. Right. I believe with compositions, anything that is a good composition can be done a hundred different ways. A piece that is a great piece of music doesn't need a full orchestra. It can go with, my gosh, just a bass and voice can do great things in the jazz world. We don't need the full combo. You know what I mean? When I tour with Frank D'Ambrosio, it's just the two of us. Can he do and sing with an orchestra? Absolutely. But it's just me being the orchestra for him. Right. And so it is a real testament to the greatness of the score itself that we can. We're doing more than just pulling it off. I thought I was going to sit there and go, oh, we're missing stuff. Like we're, this isn't enough material to make. And that's not what's happening. I'm laughing. I'm watching the staging. I am lost in the score uh, 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 and the action of what's going on. I'm not sitting there thinking, boy, this really isn't going. Uh, You know, Isaac helped me understand actors better, right? I thought that if actors are going to play the piano, that they need to learn to play the piano, right? Not so. They need to learn that piece on the piano, right? Which is where I come in as a chamber musician, right? And and here's how this instrument works. But think of this as choreography, you know, your right hand and your left hand, you actually don't need to have played Bach or have full command of this instrument to know how to play your piece on it, right? And then to watch people, uh, you know, hey, who played the flute in junior high? 
I did. Okay, great. You're playing the flute. Are you kidding me? You know, and I asked my brother-in-law who's a fireman. I mean, he's about to retire as a fireman. And I said, you know, Chris, what did you do in, in, you know, you played a marching band in high school. What instrument? And he said, oh, I played the trumpet. And I said, right now, if I said, I'm going to give you six weeks to learn some stuff on the trumpet and then perform it for people. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I could do that. You know, you, you have, as long as you have the willingness and the interest from the musicians and the actors to do this, uh, anything is possible. Uh, it's the think I was going to say, this is actually <laughs> what the show is about, isn't it? Yes. I mean, in some ways, Music Man is about people yes. who think they don't know. I mean, this is and this is your life work, yes. Stephanie. People who think they don't know how they can't be musical. So they're fighting all the time. And then this outsider comes in and teaches yes. that. I mean, through all kinds of sham and flammery. Right. And, yes. that's, and I guess the question of the ending. Right. Is like, do they actually become a cohesive ensemble or as in the movie, do they play horribly? But the here, this is the audience. Right. The audience loves them. It doesn't matter doesn't whether matter. they know how to play the trumpet because yes. the audience's perception is we love these people. And what we see in them is, I mean, this is where Peter and I are going to go theological for a second. What we see is the Holy Spirit at work in our community. So yeah. that's not actually about technical proficiency. That's about, I mean, learning, I mean, I want to say like learning how to become a real human being, learning how to love, learning how to connect with your community. Um, I think that's what the music man is trying to do. And you're all doing that at the level of like actors in, in that, perf I mean, it adds this whole kind of interesting meta level then I think to what yeah. this show can say. And going back to the question of voicing, right? Yeah. Um, the score is the score, right? Our Harold Hill, you know, do I sing this down the octave? What do I do? You know, and the response is you are Harold Hill. When you sing, you just need to sound like you. Right. And I'm not going to tell you what octave crystal is singing in. It truly doesn't matter. Are the, is the story being moved forward? Uh, I I'm interested in an even show equal voicings, right? The quartet is going to end up sounding like sweet Adeline. Yeah. Right. And it's something that we don't get. We get yeah. barbershop quartet from guys all the time. Right. But we don't get it from women. How can there be any sin in sincere? Where is the good in goodbye in goodbye? Your apprehensions confuse me.
we're perfectly capable of the same kind of um, really awesome tight harmonies. Um, the score itself, man, the townspeople, yeah. they have a range. If you if you haven't checked out the score, I mean, you know, one of, one of the singers was like, there's a high B flat. I said, yep, yeah, we're, it's yeah. a demanding score for a, for a company. But, yeah, but the musicians, the singers are so talented on their own that really and truly I have not needed to like really work that way. It's more balance. Um, letting certain characters come through because it's not just a quartet, right? There's individual personalities that are discovering themselves and discovering, oh my gosh, I can sing and I actually like these other people when I'm singing with them, right? I mean, I'll just throw this in there with a lot of my nonprofit arts organizations, we forget, and I, church is the same way, we get in trouble when we're not making music. We get in trouble when we're not in the church service. When we're in the church service, we are all having a shared experience with a common purpose. The minute we walk out the door, then here it goes again. Somebody, you know, it has an attitude as the president of the board and is going to be power tripping. Somebody's going to, I mean, you know, uh, with pick a, a little chorus, talk a little. Like a, yeah, that's pick a little talk a little. Yeah. And I will say, um, you know, Isaac was talking about uh, his experience where they wouldn't let him cast all women. When he told me that, it just, the, the old fire, mm. the old anger in my belly of women. Uh, one reason that I was, I think I was just so angry when I came out of Texas is I realized I will never be the music director in the Southern Baptist church. I can be married to the music director and they might let me play the piano, but I will never hold that position. Right. I went to San Francisco in 1999 and that was the first time that I saw a female preacher. Mm -hmm. I literally did not know it was possible. I, my, my world, I did not know that women could preach, nor, nor that there were denominations that had, you know, had gay preachers and, and what female, like, I just didn't know, right? And so this fire of, hey, I am not my reproductive organs. Yeah. I am a freaking person mm -hmm. with gifts. And I have so much, you know, my, my mother just, she loves me. I tell you what, she said, and she, she's a liberal in uh, Wichita Falls, Texas. So that's like a whole other story. God bless her. Bless her. But she told me I could be anything that I wanted to be. I could go anywhere that I wanted to go. Wherever I wanted to study, they would pay for it. They would make it happen, right? And she said, when I said that, I actually didn't know what I meant. I thought that I meant, oh, honey, you can be a concert pianist anywhere. She, she's like, you have written a play? you can sing i've heard you play the organ like you know just she didn't know what a woman would be allowed to do outside of wichita falls texas right, right. and to see me doing all of these things that women just don't get a chance to do or they're done like oh it's so sweet you know she's right. she's leading the, the church choir isn't that sweet no, I am the music director. I am the director of the thing. I'm not married to somebody. You know what I mean? Um, and, and so that, that whole piece um, keeps coming up here. And I, I, I do understand that this is a political act 
It's a political casting. I got that. But really for me, it's just a demonstration of how great humans are and what we're really capable of doing and getting back to what is all this about? If you take all of the smells and bells away, you take all of the orchestration away. Do we still have a story? Yeah. Are you able to act and tell this story and get to the heart of the story? And the answer here is absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So I just, that's beautiful. Can I just press in one more piece then around, you use the word able. So I want to talk about ableism hmm. and going back to the original source material, which I know Isaac knows, the character who's become Winthrop originally was, and I'm using Meredith Wilson's language here, a spastic boy. Hmm. And a lot of the revisions of the text in the early part were the producer saying, if you put a disabled boy on stage, he's going to draw all the attention from Harold Hill and that sort of stuff, and you lose the plot. And so ultimately, through a long convoluted process, the uh, spastic boy became the lisping boy, who was originally in Wells Fargo wagon anyway. And the story goes on. So my question is, and I don't want you to give away too much of the production, have you, uh, ableism and that whole world, have you, in what ways uh, are you, because in some ways, the lisping boy can be a bit of a uh, cipher, a bit Mm -hmm. of a red card, a problematic Mm -hmm. moment, because there's, um, he's made to look foolish, or he's a the bot of jokes. So I just wonder, given non-binary cast, six uh, women, non-binary folks producing Music Man, how have you, what, what's your thinking about Winthrop and, and uh, that sort of thing? Well, to me, Winthrop is the key to the story. Um, yeah, I right? agree. Winthrop is the redeeming version, is, is what makes Harold Hill more than a con man. Yeah. And I think, you know, if, if Harold Hill is the stand-in for Meredith Wilson, which I think is pretty clear, and, and I was moved, I was really moved by the length of time and the number of attempts Meredith Wilson made to try to make that a feature of the story. That he actually, that, you know, quote unquote, spastic boy was a, was a real kid that Meredith Wilson grew up with. And his, Meredith Wilson's mother, who was also very instrumental in, get, you know, in getting into the show and getting, you know, he keeps saying, I got to get mama into the show somehow. His mother like took care of this kid when other families would sort of shun this child. Mm-hmm. And, and that was a formative experience in Meredith Wilson's childhood. I think there is in baked into it because it's 1957, there's an there's ableist language, there's an ableist sort of, you know, there's a paternal perspective on it that is, you know, problematic in its own right. But I think that the, at the heart of it is, is somebody who's grappling with, another version of another. He also, there's also a mention in the script of Tommy Gilles's father is one of them day laborers. Yeah. Right. Yes. Right? Yeah. Right. Which is, well, a- and, and we, we, Peter and I tracked down, we tried to track down Gilles. We think that's like Eastern European, like yeah. Tommy Gilles is probably a first generation American, right? Yes. Like he's, yeah, yeah that's yeah. based on his wife. It's based yeah. on his wife. Yeah. So, yeah. So, there are all of these elements of the other. The outsiders, yeah. The outsiders. And he's wrestling, Meredith Wilson is wrestling that in the construction of the show. If you like to have a logical explanation How I happen on this elegant syncopadia I will say without a moment of hesitation There is just one place that can light my face Gary, Indiana, Gary, Indiana 
I think Winthrop is the ultimate other in the town. You know, he is the one, even his mother describes him as a problem or his sister describes him as a problem child. You know, yeah. is it his sister or his mother? I mean, yeah. Where do you fall on the Marion Marion's past, and is Winthrop her son or her brother? It's his sister. And... It's his sister. Everybody, get over it. That's what I. <laughs> All right. Yeah. yeah. No, I don't think. Yeah, I, I, I'm less interested in that reading of it. I feel like that is, you know, that reading of it feels a little problematic in its own right to me. But yeah, yeah. I'm sitting here but going, I, yeah, women, we don't have to like have a. But I also think that's because we always like we cast the older woman as the funny woman. You know, it's yeah. like. Baked right. into the casting, the political casting is like old old women can't have children because they can't have sex. Uh-huh. You know, old old women have to be funny on stage, mm-hmm. and so it can't be that that Mrs. Peru is actually Winthrop's yeah, mother. Winthrop's mother. Always yeah. cast, you know, the funny tones in that role, sure. but it it doesn't have to be that way. You know, she was she could be in her forties. You know, mm-hmm. she probably was in her forties. Right. Anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. But but I do feel like Winthrop is has always been in Meredith Wilson's con- conception of the show, the heart at the heart of it. And I think the way that that Harold Hill is not just this kind of predatory con man mm-hmm. is that he sees something in Winthrop that reminds him of, of himself. Mm-hmm. And that is why he takes an interest in the boy. There's a whole scene in this that doesn't make any, it doesn't push the story forward at all, except it is the thing that Harold doesn't have to do that he does anyway, which is to take Winthrop fishing. He takes Winthrop fishing and he doesn't do it in front of Marion and he doesn't bring Winthrop back and be like, look, I took him fishing. Right. She finds out about it because it, it changes the way that he sees the world. Mm-hmm. And that comes right after she says, you want to explain to him why his father was taken away? And I think like he does in a way he does. He goes yeah. and he sits with him at the river, and which is what my dad would have done with me. And he, ha- and he talks to the boy. And so I feel like that connection drives the redeeming heart of, of Harold Hill. And I think, you know, we've been, I've been trying to sort of draw that out of the piece. And I think, you know, the other thing that I keep, as, as you've all been talking, I'm, I'm reflecting on the ways that I think this story is telling is telling that story about reminding us of our humanity and our commonality and connecting us to be better people and make music together. And this production has forced us to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that we were talking about earlier was, you know, that we don't, we're not used to hearing women's voices, you know, sing these tight barbershop quartet. Well, I said that at a rehearsal, like at our first rehearsal, we're not used to hearing these women's voices. And I was corrected immediately mm-hmm. by our non-binary cast members who said, I'm not a woman. You know, these are treble voices. Right. And that, and that, you know, so on so many levels, I have had to grow and reflect and change the way that I present myself in this process because mm-hmm. it's baked into every level of, yeah. of, of how voices are parted out, how music is written and composed. And, you know, and so I have started describing them as treble voices because that's yeah. what they are. They're not women's voices necessarily. Boys can sing those parts, little boys. Right can sing those parts little girls can sing those parts so it can be the the gender is not the important you know you are not your sexual organs you are not those things you get to decide who you are in the world and i think that 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 has has also seen itself pulled out in the ableist because we had a a cast member injure themselves in the middle of the Mm -hmm. process and we've had to reconfigure a lot of the things that we've been doing to address their new needs in terms yeah. of what they need in order to just perform the show. And that has been, you know, a reminder of the ways that we have not been thinking about, right. you know, how we're being ableist. And so on so many levels, this project feels like it's making all of us be better people. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
in order in order to pull off what we hope is a better telling of this story. Yeah. And to imagine new possibilities. I love that way of kind of framing this this kind of productions, you know, raised on death if we if we want to say, because that in some ways, that's what the, that's the story the music man is telling. Right. Yeah. Here's a here's a world. Here's a town that is caught. And all it takes is somebody coming in to say, hey, let's think about all the different ways we could be together. We don't have to actually be locked into the pickle little ladies and the barbershop quartet is fighting. Like you all can learn to sing together through music somehow. We we tap into, and I think this is this is the bit where, where Peter and I are gonna, right? Like if I'm gonna find gospel in the music man, right? It's something about the power of singing together that's that's bigger than, as you say, our sexual organs are the color of our skin. There's something about music that taps into something that's deeply primal about being human beings, to embodied human beings together in a space um, that does allow us then to think really interestingly and broadly outside of the fixed categories that we that we think that society has kind of imposed on us. Um, music might, it, it, music both kind of can, can reify those categories sometimes, right? Music can serve to be a socially cohesive uh, and exclusionary thing in some ways. But, but what you're talking about is that the kind of the imaginative possibilities that can happen when we, when we sing together and, and, and reimagine how we are together and think about how we're changing. And the, the assumptions that I grew up with are not necessarily the assumptions I want to carry forward into this new world that we're creating. So there's a great, I think I've got the line right, but Isaac um, and Stephanie, you'll correct me. I think Harold Hill at one point says, music is just talking slow, <laughs> right? When he's, and there's something, I mean, at, at one level, it's true. Uh, <laughs> just talk a bit slower yeah. and you get a pitch. Yeah. There's sustained talking. It's just yeah. sustained talking. Yeah. <laughs> but at another level, the sustained talking, I think, is a kind of deep metaphor about maybe slowing down yeah. our, our, the way that we verbalize, conceptualize, uh, and that music moves us to another level of connection that talking is really just pick a little talk a little right it's uh so that contrast is as you were as you were speaking about that nathan was just coming to my mind and i yeah. i think one of the things liturgy does is slow down oh. our perception mm -hmm. of the world to allow for and open space for god for the divine oh. as connecting rather than our pick a little you know worlds where we okay. just kind of forget about these deeper dimensions. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting thing in the, in the score where those, 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 those things start to blend into parts that are greater than, you know, than just themselves. Like the sum is greater than the parts. So like yeah. pick a little, the pick a little ladies and the barbershop quartet and the piano meld suddenly to make something that is extraordinarily beautiful. Yeah and communal and it is still just the rhythm of everyday speech you know he was so interested in the rhythm of everyday speech and how that right. organically music. yeah that opening number is almost doing hamilton 60 oh. years before lin-manuel miranda got oh, around to it isn't it yeah it's an amazing number river city next station stop river city next cash for the merchandise cash for the button hooks cash for the cotton goods cash for the hard goods cash for the fancy goods cash for the soft goods cash for the noggins and the piggins and the frickins cash for the hogshead cask and jemmy jar cash for the crackers and the pickles and the fly paper look what do you talk 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 what do you get it what do you talk you can talk you can talk you can bicker you can talk you can bicker 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 you can talk you can talk you can talk 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 bicker 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 you can talk all you want but it's different than it was no it ain't no it ain't but you gotta know the territory. 
Yeah, yeah. and just you wait till, till you see how we do that opening. Oh, I can't wait. Rock Island is actually one of my favorite parts of the music, man. So I'm super excited to, yeah. Yeah. Well, y'all were talking about pick a little that we had a, a longer discussion in the workshop around this and, you know, and also around Winthrop, you know, are these caricatures? Are we playing them sort of caricature wise or is it, you know, present this authentically? Right. And for me, the pick a little ladies are very, very real. Mm-hmm. These are people you you grew I, up with the pick a little ladies, didn't you? I did. And yeah. actually, I will go so far as to say I was subliminally conditioned to be one. Mm. Women are conditioned to uh, be enemies with one another. Mm-hmm. If there is a beautiful woman in the room, she's obviously going to steal my husband. Yeah. I can't just say there's a beautiful woman and compliment her i have to be i have to be, be threatened, threatened somehow after. yeah pick a little talk a little pick a little talk a little chip 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 talk a lot pick a little more pick a little talk a little pick a little talk a little chip 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 talk a lot pick a little more pick a little talk a little pick a little talk a little chip 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 talk a lot pick a little more pick a little talk a little pick a little talk chip 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 professor her kind of woman doesn't belong in any committee of course i shouldn't tell you this but she advocates dirty books dirty books chaucer rabelais She made brazen overtures to a man who didn't have a friend in his town until she came here. Oh, yes, that woman made brazen overtures with a gilt edge guarantee. She had a golden glint in her eye and a silver voice with a counterfeit ring. Just melt her down and you'll reveal a lump of lead as cold as steel here, where a woman's heart should be. During Pick a Little, they're talking about, oh, you know, she reads dirty books. Right. I how oh my God. How many times did I hear this in the Southern Baptist Church? Well, that book's, you know, dirty mm-hmm. and just awful and evil. And the next question I have is, did you read it? Yeah. I mean, or did you just hear, you know, with scripture? Did someone tell you what to think? Yeah. Or did you actually go read it yourself and make an informed decision about what that actually means? Because when we come back, when the pick a little reprise happens, mm-hmm. Harold had basically said, well, go read them. Right. right. And they come back with, I read the books. I, and I, I loved it. it. Yeah. Well, you know, they, they have their own moment of, wait a second, you yeah. know. We, they we, reimagine new possibilities yeah. for how they're going to be women together in this yeah. particular, yeah. And, you know, I don't know if this is relevant, but sweet little Winthrop, I mean, I've taught elementary school um, for years and little boys in particular, it is very natural and common for little boys to stutter for a period of time. It's just part of their development, right? But it's a really critical moment right there in their lives. Do we ridicule them? Do we make fun of them? Or do we wait for them to finish their sentence? Or do we finish it for them, right? You know, and and how how is a person's worth um, attached to the way they speak? Yeah. Right. Uh, and you mentioned the Tommy Gilles' dad is a day laborer. I never heard that. Mm-hmm. I never. It's a throwaway line. But when, when you're staging the piece the way that you're doing it, those throwaway lines that get lost in a big production with lots of flags, that, that's the, that's the yeah. one of the chamber piece, right? We actually get to hear yep. the music and the text that Meredith Wilson yep. put in a whole different, like, it's a much more intimate experience of, of the show itself, right? We're not adding anything. We're taking stuff away, as you say, so that we can really see what's there. It's, in yep. some ways, it's, it's the, I, I think potentially it's the most faithful presentation of the material that Meredith Wilson wrote. 
And well, the, mayor, the mayor can't even finish a sentence, really. His grammar right. and his command of the English language is so terrible. Yeah. Don't make me refer to recent leaders. Right. <laughs> he literally cannot spell and cannot finish a sentence or a coherent thought. So we can say, oh, he's making a, you know, uh, it's a caricature. Uh, no, actually, we just had yeah, it. It's, it's, pretty, well, it's pretty on the nose. Honestly, wow. it's pretty, pretty on, on the, the nose. nose. You know, so it is how we present this. Yeah. And if we present these as real people, mm-hmm. then the story is really coming through. And we really do catch all these these little things. You, I, I know that we're... Uh, you kept saying something about the gospel, right? What does this production do for me? Mm-hmm. Uh, joy. Yeah. Total joy. Yeah. Every time, you know, um, Isaac and I have talked, we have tragedies, <laughs> tragedy. Close friends have died. Family members have died, you know, going into the production during the workshop, one of Isaac's closest family members passed mm-hmm. and it, it just devastating, right? shootings in the world, all of this bad news everywhere, right? But for this moment at six o'clock, we come into this rehearsal space and it really is a religious experience. It really is the spiritual moment of going, I get to make music with this group of people dancing around. Do I get to say we ride the piano like the wheels? Oh, I may have given something away. (laughs) (laughs) No spoilers, no spoilers. Come see it, come see it. When you see that kind of fun mm-hmm. being had, it's not work anymore, it's joy. And right. that is absolutely what the audience is going to get. I don't know what they think they're going to see, but they are going to leave feeling joy. Yep. That, that is the gift of this production. Uh, and I feel like that's the best church that you go yeah. to right? when you leave right. and go, oh, I have hope. For human for humanity, I have hope for the world. Um, mm-hmm. There was a balm that was offered for yeah. all of the ills. I was able to walk away just a moment and, and you know uh, have a, a beautiful experience, a common experience with other people. That that's what's happening here. It's 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 a worship experience in the form yeah. of musical theater. First. I love that. I love that. And to our earlier conversation, in maybe maybe always, but I think particularly in this particular moment in our time, that too is a political act, mm-hmm. right? Letting ourselves, freeing yes. ourselves to yep. have that kind. I mean, like there are so many forces in this world that are trying to keep us from that experience, right? Yes. Define us in these kind of very narrow kind of, you know, either by our genitalia, by where you stand on this particular issue, right? Like just the, the ability... Yeah, the ability. And, you know, we just come through two and a half years where artists were not able to do this. Right. So I think we're I think that the the stakes of live theater, we're all a little bit more aware. I mean, especially I can imagine we haven't even really talked about the COVID protocols that I'm sure you all are thinking about all the time. Right. I mean, the stakes of this thing are high. Let's 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 not pretend that, you know, what a privilege to be able to do this. We haven't always been able to do it. We are able to do it. But one of the things that I love is like I, I think I think there's a there's this kind of uh, willingness to look at the power of things that we used to take for granted and say, no, actually, theater really matters. Mm-hmm. Theater that is that is fun, that, you know, that maybe before we would have dismissed it, ah, that's a little bit of a, especially music, man, right? Ah, it's an exercise in nostalgia, it's escapism, it's, uh, you know, like we all just kind of want to go escape into the pretty little white world of 1901 Iowa. So like, no, that's not what this is about, right? There is something deeply powerful about joy. Um, deeply, I would say deeply political about joy in this kind of a context. Yeah. yeah, I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. This will be our first Third Rail's first production since like live production since the pandemic. Yeah, And, um, and it feels 
you know, it feels like an absolute privilege to do it and a real responsibility. I feel, you know, I feel not only because this is something I've been dreaming about for seven years now, but, but, and, and it's seen so many iterations, but that like, this, this is like, in, in a way, uh, our first statement into the new world. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and it is a new world. I mean, I think we've been saying that all along, right? Like, let's not waste this moment, right? Like, none of us want to, so much stuff has happened in the last two years. Uh, our world feels like it's tottering on the brink of some kind of, you know, all kinds of apocalyptic disasters and all kinds, of, especially in America right now. I mean, oh my God. Like, yeah. I feel like we're, we're getting, I mean, in some ways, like the world of 1950 feels threateningly close in a lot yeah. of very scary ways. So yeah. the more that I think that we can kind of uh, speak into that, into that void and resist that kind of world. But as you say, like, imagine a, a whole kind of different way of being on the other side of this thing. Well, and I also think as like, you know, I'll speak as a white artist in this industry, you know, like I am eager for, for the new voices to not be white artists. Like I'm eager for the new voices to be artists whose voices have been marginalized or silenced for hundreds of years. So that new work, the new, the next musicals, you know, the strange loops, you know, those are the ones that I'm like excited for artists of color and artists of any kind of marginalization to, to be making. I think my responsibility as a white artist is, you know, high schools are still going to be doing the music man. People are still producing Shakespeare. We have to deal with, we have to deal with the, the building blocks of this white Western civilization we've built and, and examine the stories we're founding all of this stuff on and examine what is worth keeping from those stories and what do we need to discard. Yeah. And that feels like the work that is responsibly mine, you know, and I, and I feel like I feel very strongly about that. So I can't, I would be, it would be irresponsible of me to just produce a, a piece of, of musical theater, you know, escapism from 1957 right now, like the music right. man, and just do it like it was always done because it would be reifying a world that right. we need to move beyond. Yep. And so, so I, I hope that's my, my hope and my prayer for this is that mm-hmm. it is a, it is a way for me to kind of do that work and, and also say that work doesn't have to always be painful. That right. work can be joyful. That in fact should, should must be, must yeah. be joyful. Right. Must be joyful. Uh, well, I don't I know about right. the rest of you, but I feel like I've been to church. <laughs> I do. I do every night. I, I really do. We uh, we're on Marco Polo. I don't know if you know that. It's an awesome app, but it's a video app, right? Uh-huh. And after every rehearsal, uh, we Isaac and I both go home and we get on Marco Polo, and it, it's just a great experience. We just connect around. Yes, this needs to be fixed. We need to work on this. This needs to be fixed. We need to work on this. Da da da. And we always end with this is such a great experience. I need this right now. Yeah. This is just so wonderful. You know, right before bed, this is where my mind gets to be Mm -hmm. is seeing humans at their absolute best. Yeah. And it's Mm -hmm. an extraordinary team. I mean, I want to shout out this. this Which one? Oh my gosh. Speaking of speaking of COVID protocols, we we cast two understudies, mm-hmm. and the, a lot of the cast is like um, covering each other's tracks in case right. you know in in case of doing that. But they are all just extraordinary, mm-hmm. and they we could do the show under any circumstances really right now. Yeah. Kind of what it feels like, and the production team as well is is I'm I very intentionally am the uh, one of only two men on on in any part in any level of this production. It's me and the COVID compliance officer, and I think 
it's so exciting for me to be in those rooms and feel like the, the, the energy and the possibility and the create the creativity yeah. that these people who don't typically, you know, get the opportunity to bring the fullness of themselves into right. making something yeah. and that, that to me is like the most joyful part of it is that yeah. I just feel like I have the great privilege and honor of being present yeah. where, when people bring the fullness of themselves and that's it's a- m- it's more fun, isn't it? I mean, I think to this point around joy, right? I think as, as those, you know, as I'll just speak as a cis white straight, well, cis white queer man, right? Like I think the way that we think about this is like stuff is gonna be taken away from me. Yeah. And actually the lived experience of being in diverse rooms is that it's way more fun. And it sets me free to really actually be me. And my like, there is so much joy when we let go of this idea that certain people who have historically been in charge of rooms like that have to continue, have to hang on to our, to our power. It's like, that's, that kills fun. It kills joy. It kills spirit. But when we experience what it's like to kind of take a difference and have a different set of voices, reimagining this stuff, I mean, what what joy in that? So that that's my that's my dream for white people right now, right? It's my dream for straight people right now. It's my dream for men right yeah. now, yeah. right? Like it's so much more fun when yeah. we're not hanging on to bullshit. Yes, it's liberating. It's liberating, liberating right? Yeah. These structures, these awful structures, hurt all of us. Even yeah. the ones that keep they keep in power, it hurts us too. That's right. And, yeah. And, and letting go of it is, is, it's just joy. And learning how to sing a new song. I mean, yes, oh my God, what a, what a perfect show to think about what that looks like and what that feels like. I yeah. am so bummed that I won't be able to see this. Show, I know. But- well, and I, and I can't wait. I've, I get to see it next Tuesday with a friend of mine and I'm like over the moon. I'm so excited. I, we it. haven't even, we haven't even had a chance to talk about Marcellus Washburn, my, my very favorite character in the whole piece. Uh, and, uh, and his, and his girlfriend, the, the piano player, piano player, Player, player piano player piano wait what's her remind me her name ethel toffelmeyer ethel toffelmeyer ethel Toffel- <laughs> i can't wait to see how you how you handle ethel toffelmeyer i am just like i'm over the moon i got a nice comfortable girl oh uh, nice yes uh, right yep, oh, yep. Does that mean? okay uh-huh, uh-huh. yeah sh- <laughs> shapoopy we, we didn't get to really talk about all the ways in which you've tried to uh update the material i i, I have lots of questions about shapoopy and what that Can has we to do say this about maybe again Nathan, <laughs> i was gonna say yeah maybe maybe peter you and i should do a little uh, a little uh, a little talk around because I'm, yeah. I'm very curious about the woman who uh the woman who waits for the very first date is usually a hussy and the woman who waits till the second time out is anything but fussy but the girl who waits till the third time around head on the head on the clouds feet on the ground she's the one you're glad you found she's your shapoopy the full cast had a lot of conversation and thinking around this and isaac uh-huh. did a brilliant job of a rewrite that did get approved you know it's a it's a great take now a woman will kiss on the very first date is usually a hussy and a woman will kiss on the second time out anything but fussy but a woman who'll wait till the third time around head in the clouds feet on the ground she's a girl you're glad you found she's your shapoopy 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 the girl is hard to get shapoopy 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 but you can't win her yet Walk her once just to raise the curtain Walk around twice and make for certain Once more in the flower garden Never get sore if you beg her pardon Squeeze her once when she isn't looking Get a squeeze back that's fancy cooking Once more for a pepper upper Never get sore on her way to supper A little old sow was an old gal As anyone could see Look at her now, she's a go-gal Who only goes for me Squeeze her once 
but she isn't looking. Get a sweet back that's fancy cooking. Once more for a pepper upper, never get sore on a way to supper. lot of these things too is without um without not with without like trying to cover up the problem either yeah right? yep. you don't want to do that you want to like right. acknowledge that that was like, let's not pretend that this is okay right yeah. like this is actually the kind of stuff that people said then said in the yeah. 50s and are saying now yeah. like let's not now. pretend that this isn't a thing anymore right we still police sex for women there's still right. a lot of shame built into that yeah. And this is a this is a demonstration of the pageantry, the sort of absurd pageantry of straight relationships. Yeah. And so Harold and Marion are not interested in this. Right. So it's casting, you know, it still has to be something that like forces them to be like, oh, that's not really us. We're right. going to do a different kind of, you know, love story. And how you do that without also, you know, writing a song about sexual assault. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Complicated, but. Uh, complicated, yeah. But complicated. I think we're, yeah, I, I, I'm hopeful that what we came up with is a good solution. Oh, I can't wait to see it. Well, so Portland audiences, this production yeah. of The Music Man is playing at Third Rail Rep. It's at Coho Theater. Is that right? Northwest right. Raleigh. Uh, right. Opens June 17th. 17th. Closes yeah. July 4th weekend. So if you're listening to this, you're probably listening to it on opening night. I make no promises that tickets are available, but go online, get your tickets to um, to the Music Man at Third Rail Rep Production. And uh, and then look Peter and I up online because we would love to hear what you think about it. I can't wait to talk about this production with everybody that uh, in my life who's seeing it. And there's a lot of buzz about this production in Portland right now. So I think a lot of people will be seeing it. Um, it feels like the right show for us right now in this, in this city, in this time. Uh, and if you're not a Portlander, you know, Follow follow yeah. Third Rail on all the social media apps, yeah, and right. that's right. Once it becomes so successful, we take it on tour. What that's is- hey, what a what a dream, what a dream. And this, I mean, this feels like the you know I think about the kind of new production of Oklahoma, John Doyle's works, kind of reimagining Stephen Sondheim with actors who are playing their own. I mean, this way of approaching texts feels very much of the moment right now. So exactly. I hope there is a life for this production beyond the Portland production. I would anticipate um, that there will be. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. really exciting. So- break a leg and married and all yes, those good indeed. words in the theater. And uh, thanks so much for being on. The thanks show. for talking with us guys. Delight. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely to get to meet you. Lovely to get to have a, a good Jesuit boy, a former Southern Baptist girl, people who know church, know okay. theater and can really talk about, and that's what this podcast is all about, right? How we are humans, how we find that in church, how we find it in theater. Cause really it's all, it's all singing together. I mean, it's all singing. So that's what we love about this stuff. Blessed be and Shapoopy. And Shapoopy. <laughs> Blessings and Shapoopies. Uh, bye. Hi. The Gospel of Musical Theater is a production of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. Join Peter and Nathan every other Friday right here in your podcast feed and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Gospel of MT. Learn more and support us at trinity-episcopal.org slash podcasts. See you next time.